Hi, and welcome to our In Conversation um, series for decolonizing architecture. This video will be about decolonizing education. I'm Zed, I'm one of the founding members of Decolonizing Architecture, and today I'm joined by Sarah Khan, who is the Vice President, Liberation and Equality at the National Union of Students, and has been working with Decolonized University of Manchester over the past year. Um, so to start us off, when we talk about decolonizing or specifically decolonizing education, what do we really mean? It's a big question, um, but a good starting point, I guess. Um, so I guess if I were to find somewhere to begin, it would probably be the curriculum because I think that's what a lot of people talk about. So it makes sense to start there. Um, I think that currently, like the conversation around decolonizing education um, is looking at kind of what we're taught, what's on reading lists um, and who is on reading lists, which I think is important to a degree, but I think that that can slip into kind of this whole, you know, diversifying your reading list is the only work that needs to be done. So I think that when we think about decolonization, we need to think a lot bigger than that. Um, universities are institutions, obviously. Um, so decolonization is about looking at institutional structure, um, which, of which the curriculum is only one part. Um, and decolonization in the context of education is about thinking about this institution of education and recognizing that it is an institution which perpetuates colonialism in various ways um, and historically is an institution which has been built to serve that purpose. So I think that there are a few, a few things to consider when we start having that conversation, which is what is the history of universities? what like what were they built to do and what purpose were they built to serve who was meant to be in them and um how is that reflected now like um in the structures that we see in education now and the curriculum is like a part of that but i think beyond thinking about like having people of color on reading lists etc we have to be thinking about like who is teaching us, what they're teaching us, why, um, and also like who runs universities, um, what you like, where universities are getting their money from, how they're making profits, etc. So yeah, I think for a super big question, those, those are kind of hopefully the starting points that I'd want to put out there. So it isn't necessarily just um, diversifying your reading list or quotas in terms of getting student numbers up. It's about questioning why knowledge is created in the way it is, who it's created by, who it's created for, and actually about democratizing our institutions and dealing with marketization and all of these other things that we hear in the student movement. Yeah, I think that's a much more eloquent and H-E literate way of putting it. But yeah, um, yeah, I think democratization is a really interesting point that I don't actually necessarily people, I don't actually necessarily see people talk about as much in 
decolonized uh, education movements, um, but I think it's probably one of the key points for me. Um, and why is why is democratization like decolonial or anti-colonial? I, I think because we have to think about it comes back to that question of coloniality and what it is um, and this idea of identifying how coloniality manifests in our institutions and, and one of those ways is that our institutions are managed in like a bureaucratic top-down profit-driven um, neoliberal way and like we need to imagine education as something like radically different like as a as a community activity as a right and not a privilege um etc so what do you think um students staff and activists can actually do to further decolonizing work like setting up groups is good but in the long term you need to have like goals what do you think those goals should be um there are a lot of things that those goals could be <laughs> is the thing um and depending on your positionality within the university you can like achieve those or like work together to achieve those in certain ways um i think the importance of setting up groups like certainly in my experience at the university of manchester the aim of setting up a group has been um to create staff student solidarity more than anything. Um, but I, I digress. Um, I think when it comes to, to the goals, like tangible goals, um, I think at the moment we are maybe stuck in a place where decolonization looks kind of like I've alluded to, like talking about solely the curriculum and this idea of decolonizing the mind and like that's important um but political education is really only the beginning um and i think a lot of us need to be like going away and trying to do that in our own time as well um when it comes to like tangible work that can be done i think that like i think this is why staff student solidarity is so important actually because we need to be looking about at like um staff hires like does your university have any black staff a lot of students have a lot of universities have literally zero black staff which is appalling um and like working together with academics to kind of shape what's on the curriculum instead of working with management who will try and kind of use that to create divisions between staff and students um and uh, I think a lot of activism around kind of like divestment is a very material, a material manifestation of decolonization work because especially when it comes to, um, so particularly we're seeing movements around divesting from fossil fuels and um, BDS, divesting from war crimes, specifically Israeli war crimes. Um, and that's super important, like material, uh, decolonial work because um, we can talk about decolonization and um, do political education as much as we want but like the fact of the matter is that institutions are like 
they they are perpetuating war crimes materially by like putting research into developing weapons investing in like um investing in states which apartheid states essentially um We like at Decolonize URM, we did a lot of um, work around um, the UCU strikes actually, and that was a really good opportunity to um, further conversations about this idea of like democratizing institutions. Um, because we had a couple of panel events and stuff during teach outs where we talked about, like, okay, well, you know, if the purpose of the UCU strikes is to, to fight back against like the appalling like neoliberal management of universities and how do we like imagine another way for universities to be governed um and i think that what i found interesting was that in those spaces we got quite stuck in still thinking that universities need like some kind of top-down bureaucratic business management and a lot of the conversations revolved around getting staff and students on board of governors and stuff like that I think that's only so useful. Like I've sat on the board of governors of the University of Manchester for like a year. And like, I can tell you for a fact that no matter how many times I like raised the ethnicity pay gap or like um, the BME awarding gaps, they just like smile and nod and do absolutely nothing. So yeah, I feel like I've gone off on one a bit but it's not a question with like a an easy or or singular answer i think so hopefully those are some examples of like tangible tangible kind of goals that we can achieve as like it's certainly with with divestment i think that that's something that we have like a clear tangible goal in mind i think maybe when it comes to democratization we still need to do the work to imagine what a democratized university looks like there's kind of like a mental block for a lot of us there at the moment and i think some of the hardest work when it comes to decolonization is imagining a radically different structure yeah so we have to imagine what we want our institutions to be or whether they are institutions at all and as well making links with other causes like BDS and divestment of fossil fuels and the call for more sustainable um, universities and join forces with them to further decolonization. Because it's also argued that climate change and environmental issues are very much a race issue as well. Would you be able to expand on that? Yeah, I mean, very much so. I think like, um, a lot of a lot of issues in in the modern day environmental movement arise from the fact that it's become like a sexy like mainstream like white thing but environmental activism has been going on for um probably centuries in black and indigenous communities um fighting against like the development of like um, the development of like industrialization, the use of fossil fuels, etc. Um, but only over the past couple, 
the past few years, I think it's becoming like an increasingly mainstream conversation, which revolves around um, middle class white Western people saying that the planet needs to be livable for their children and that we need to preserve a future for our children, which, of course, is a narrative which completely erases the fact that for a very long time, black and indigenous communities, particularly in the global south, have already faced the devastating effects and are are facing the devastating effects of climate change, which are the direct consequence of global industrial capitalism wreaking havoc on our planet, um, which is only as which only became as widespread as it is because of Western imperialism. Um, which completely decimated indigenous land and life in order to create profit. Um, and I think when it comes to like the tangible activism that's going on now, as well as kind of recognizing that history of like what the situation we're in now is literally happening because of Western colonialism and also climate activism has been going on for a very long time. Uh, before middle-class white people decided that they cared about it. Um, But also in terms of like how that activism manifests now, it's so inaccessible to a lot of people, um, mainly disabled people and people of colour in various ways. So if we're talking about people of colour, for example, like some environmental groups, uh, I'm sure you heard about like I think it was Extinction Rebellion, like sending flowers to Brixton police. I have a um, colleague who is actually quite like active in XR, but is like very critical of these things. And he was telling me about going to like one of their big protests in Scotland somewhere, I think. And the fact that like there was a group of people who were, um, you know, yelling, like, abolish the police and stuff, but then, like, right across the road from them, like, other environmental activists were being like, no, don't do that, like, protect the police. Um, and, of course, it's it's incredibly, like, tone-deaf to try and, like, sympathise with or reach out to the police um, in a movement like that. Um, to, to, like, the needs and the safety of, like, people of colour, particularly migrants um and a lot of climate activism is really like physically inaccessible as well and climate activism isn't the only form of activism that's guilty of this but again like in manchester i think it was like several months ago it was definitely over this past year like one of the big actions that was done was shutting down like tram stations Again, this isn't like a productive kind of way of direct action working because the idea of direct action is to like target, to to cause disruption to like the oppressive structures that exist. Then a tram stop is not doing anything except stopping like working class people from getting to work. Um, Like, I don't know, target like a bank or something, not a tram station. It doesn't make any sense. Um, yeah, so I, I think that historically, materially, in the way that activism is manifesting in, like, the narrative of the climate movement, 
um, etc. Those are like the the various ways in which like you begin to see that like climate change is inextricable from issues of race and racism. Um, and I don't think our climate activism is going to get us anywhere if we can't acknowledge that. So just to bring it back towards like architecture as a profession, um, with all of like the different battles that we've discussed so far with um, climate change and racism, etc., you can often find that architects and architecture, well, the architecture that we inhabit is becoming increasingly violent against working class people or homeless people. Um, and often the infrastructure that is used to um, oppress members of society, whether that be um, uh, buildings in, say, Palestine, etc., are designed by architects. And that's one of the reasons why we set up decolonizing architecture as a group. Um, but within our focus on trying to change the curriculum, a lot of that is prescribed by the Royal Institute of British Architects. Um, so what do you think would be our aim in terms of tackling a national institution like that? Oh, so it's a very good question. I, yeah, I don't really, I didn't know that and don't really know anything about like the Royal Institute of Architects, but I think like, um, I am relatively like skeptical about the effectiveness of like pushing like for example pushing a established neoliberal institution like OFS for example um yesterday I was in a round table where we were kind of like discussing the needs of disabled students uh during covid and kind of a lot of people were suggesting that um getting ofs to police the sector was kind of like the way to make that kind of thing happen um and i would kind of put out there that i i think that that's it's just not the case because a group like ofs like the royal institute of architects is never really going to center the voices of like it's never going to center our voices or have our best interests at heart so i think that rather than putting energy into kind of like focus groups or like research or stuff that you could feed into the royal institute i think that external pressure and independent like decolonial groups that can like in a completely unfettered manner, kind of be completely open about their demands and make those demands and lobby for those demands is really important. Um, I, I guess, like in my opinion, as long as a group which is which is like led by people who are like imaginably like old white men completely detached from like the needs of like young people of color in architecture um are never going to have your best interests at heart so i think that like an, in an institution like that an organization like that um you can only really go so far with it what i'm alluding to is basically tear it down and make your own thing but <laughs> yeah but if that's not possible just 
lobby from the outside rather than trying to take over from the inside. Yeah, so I think that I think that a lot of the time when someone like me says tear it down and make your own thing, then then understandably people are like, okay, but that's not an easy thing to do. And uh, you're right, it's not. So I, I think that we do have to understand that tear it down and make your own thing takes like a lot of work. And to some extent that can be like working with them or working from the inside to, su to some extent. But I really see people kind of like put all of their energy into that. Um, and I think we need to understand that like reformation from the inside when an institution is literally like designed for the very purpose of like oppressing you and silencing your voice is never going to like work and it's not going to be the only tactic. So I think like working from the inside, like keep it in mind as a tactic and it can be useful sometimes. But I think creating like independent groups and being like vocal and lobbying is the most powerful thing to do. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think that's all we have for now to discuss on decolonizing education. Well, thank you very much for this insightful conversation. Thank you for having me.